We're in a series called You Are Here, and for most of us, we have a tendency to look at our lives and wonder about what our life would be like if it was somewhere else. Like as if we're right here right now, but to imagine our lives to be slightly different as somewhere off in the distance, either way off in the future, or perhaps like it once was in the golden era of our life, whenever that was a couple years ago, that we tend to lose sort of what God is doing in the midst of where we are right now. And so this is where we are. And we're in the fourth week of that series. I'd encourage you, if you haven't yet sort of heard the other parts of the series, to go and listen to the previous couple of weeks. And, um, but uh, before we get into this week, would you join me as we pray and invite God to sort of do some work in us? <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we pause and we invite you to reveal within us the things that are going on, the things that we ought to know about, that you want to speak to directly today. Lord, we're confident that you want to work in us. Some of us in this room will need your comfort. Others of us will need your provocation. Some of us will need to be inspired and encouraged. And Lord, we pray that you would speak to us in the way that we most need. Jesus, we give to you this time knowing that you are over all of it, over the biggest celebrations and the deepest pains and the joys and the sadnesses of our lives. We know that you are not overwhelmed by any of it. And so, Jesus, we submit it all to you. In your name, Lord. Amen. Well, let me ask you this. If, by the way, if you, there are some people that would love to hand you a Bible if you want one. We're actually going to look at the Bible in a little bit. But um, if you want a Bible, just go ahead and throw your hand up. And while that's happening, I'm going to ask you just a little, this is a little talk back moment in our service. So let me ask you a couple questions, or just ask you a question. You can throw out some answers. What is generally, I mean, now when people are walking by you and they say the phrase, they ask you the question, how are you doing? If you need a Bible, just put your hand up. If, um, if you're, someone's walking by you and they say, how are you doing? What are some of the only acceptable answers that you can give to people? Good, fine. What else? What's that? What'd you say? One more time. Compared to what? Compared to what? Ooh, it's very philosophical. How you doing? Compared to what? <laughs> Deal with that. Next question. Okay, good. <laughs> okay. What else? I've never heard that answer. That's a good one. What else? Awesome. I'm awesome. I'm awesome. What else? Okay. How you doing? Okay. What's that? Blessed. What's that? Hanging in there. Man, I'm just hanging in there. Okay, what else? Same? Someone said sane? Same. Same? How you doing? Same. How you doing? Eleven. What? <laughs> there you go. It's starting to, you're starting to get it. Okay, good. Anybody else? What's that? Don't ask. How you doing? Don't, it's too late. They already did. <laughs> How you doing? Don't ask. <laughs> Next question. Okay. <laughs> what else? What? Unbelievable. You won't even believe it if I told you. How you doing? Unbelievable. You and, you and Awesome can hang out together. Anybody else? Other answers. How you doing? 
Better now, is that what someone said? Better now. The question in itself was just a breath of fresh air. Better now. Anything else? Anybody else got an answer yet? You don't want to know. That's the beginning of your movie trailer. How you doing? You don't want to know. This summer, five boys. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, good. Generally, when people answer the question, how are you doing? Our, our basic social skills tell us. Do not go into a story about how bad it is. You're supposed to answer with short answers that leave people to not ask further questions. I'm good, fine. I'm all right. I'm awesome even. You don't want to know. But <laughs> whatever it is, our answer is intended to kind of shut off further conversation. And by and large, most of our answers are at least neutral and mostly they're positive. Fine, good, doing great. How are you? Awesome, cool. Have you ever tried to call someone on that? Just to like mess with them? Because you know, really, you're not, you're really kind of being a jerk if you really try to like, do you really mean that when you're asking? And you try to go into it, but it's sort of fun to do it every once in a while. When I was in high, or I think I was a freshman in college, we decided to, we, we knew that, well, when you go to In-N-Out, what's the first question they ask you? Not what can I get for you? How are you doing? So we're like, this is going to be awesome. We're going to videotape them trying to deal with us, like as if we're taking that question seriously. So we got a video camera. And some of you guys don't know what a video camera is. It, it's, a, it's like this. And you, you would put this bazooka on your shoulder. And you'd look through a little viewfinder and you could record things. And they would come out, the, the recordings would come out on a little thing about this big. It's called a video cassette. And then we'd watch them back on, a, you know, anyway, so I have this thing. And because we, the, it's not like you could just point your little phone or kind of hide it. We had to like cover this massive, you know, video camera with a blanket in my buddy in the, in the front of my car. So it's like 85 degrees in the summer. And... Um, my buddy's in the passenger seat, the blanket's covering the video camera, and it's pointing out across, you know, sort of my chest to the, the little speaker box at the at In-N-Out. And, of course, we pull up there, <laughs> lunch hour. How you doing? Oh. <sighs> Not so good. Uh, our dog died. And we just totally melodramatic, you know. And she's the, the person taking order on the other side is like, pause. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> Another long pause. What, what can I get for you? <laughs> Counseling? You know. <laughs> but we're generally, we're like not really all that accustomed to the unwellness of other people. And we're not really all that accustomed to even our own unwellness. Let me, let me ask you guys just a, a question. How many of you, now get, this is a family moment, so we're going to have some confession, and um, so I just want you to know we're a family here, we're all on the same page, exhale, show of hands, how many of you have ever experienced pain in your life? Everybody except you don't want to know. Okay. <laughs> all of us have experienced pain, and because it's part of the experience of being a human being. And yet, it's something that's not really discussed, and most often it's barely acknowledged. Now, this kind of thinking, this idea that everything's kind of fine or good or great or awesome and good in you, all that kind of stuff, actually tends to translate to the way that we look at and view the Bible and experience God. If you would, if you want to turn in your Bible to Psalm 33, I'll, I'll give you a sense of what I mean. Now, most of us, 
When we memorize Scripture, for those of us who have done that, or try to memorize Scripture, or need encouragement, we'll hold on to things that orient our lives around God who is keeping things safe and good and fine and wonderful and right. And so we look at things like Psalm 33. And if you have like one translation of the Bible, the NASB, the New American Standard, it has this, the title for this, this section of the Bible is Praise to the Preserver and Creator. Praise to the Creator and Preserver. In other words, this is the ultimate sort of expression of everything's fine because God is. Does that make sense? Now I want you to read this and then we'll, I'll, I'll read it. I'm going to skip a little bit of it and I'm going to read it pretty fast because I just want you to get the big brushstrokes of this passage. So here we go. Psalm 33. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise Him. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to Him on the ten-string lyre and sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy for the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all He does and the Lord loves righteousness and justice and the earth is full of His unfailing love. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host, by the breath of His mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars, and he puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations, and he thwarts the purposes of the people. Skip down to verse 18. Trust me, the middle chunk is the same. More about how God is awesome. He created stuff. He's powerful. All that kind of stuff. Verse 18. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him. On those whose hope is in his, un, in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. And we wait in, in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Now this is the kind of thing, if you'd ask me what kind of stuff's in the Bible, this is generally what you kind of expect to see. God's awesome. He's protecting us. His unfailing love is always around us. We're overwhelmed with it. It's so great and beautiful and magical and all kinds of stuff. And yet there's this sense, though, that life isn't always a reflection of that reality for us. It isn't always that we're insulated from pain and suffering because everybody in this room just said we've all experienced pain at some point in our lives. In fact, it's, the, the, the trouble comes when we start to think about this kind of scripture as being what we call normative for every situation. Normative means it should apply in every circumstance. I mean, it creates trouble for people when this is, you know, especially when this is like, it's not uncommon for this kind of passage to be quoted for people who are really hurting. Hey man, how you doing? Okay. I lost my job. Well, you know what? He is our help and our shield. Well, I don't know if my boss knew about the shield thing. Because I just didn't, could you tell him? I mean, you know, this is the kind of thing we tell people. And it's with the best of intention. But the, the idea is, though, that there's something weird that happens to us in this circumstance. Because for us, we experience pain and trial and suffering. And then we encounter something like Psalm 33. And we go, well, this doesn't seem to add up. And when we try to, good, well-meaning people who follow Jesus, try to make this normative for every situation, what ends up happening to people who are suffering real pain and loss and sorrow is two things. They either deny that the pain is there for fear of being sort of found out, for not having the right sort of picture of who God is, or they have shame about it. I really experience pain, but I'm supposed to be sort of experiencing God's wonderful shield. 
And so we sort of wonder, what are we supposed to do about pain? Now, this isn't the only psalm in the Bible. If you want to flip to Psalm 88, we're going to get there in a second. This isn't the only psalm in the Bible. Roughly one-third of the psalms, there's 150 psalms, roughly one-third of them have an entirely different feel about them. In fact, if, there, if Psalm 33 occupies one end of the spectrum, Psalm 88 is on the exact opposite end of the spectrum. And if you want to kind of get a picture about what this looks like, there is language that's given to pain and suffering. These psalms that, are, that fall into this category are psalms of what are called lament. And some of you are in a place of lament, of deep and profound sadness, where there is not the words of, thank you for being an awesome shield around me, but words rather of, I need you to be something, God. So Psalm 88 starts this way. You should look at this too, but I'm going to show you the heading first. Okay, here's the, here's the heading. This is before the verses start. Psalm 88, a song. If you have your own Bible, circle those two words, a song. That's going to, come back, that's going to matter in a second, okay? Uh, a psalm of the sons of Korah for the, direct, for the director of music, according to Mahalat Leonot, a mascal of Heman the Ezraite who writes good songs. Now, what you're about to read is a song. Now, the Psalms themselves are sort of the, the written prayers of people to, to God. And it expresses a whole variety of sort of the spectrum of prayer and of, and of life. Now, this one is a song. And it is set to music, to these things right This is the tune we'll be singing. Concerning afflictive sickness is what that means in Hebrew. The NASB has this, a petition to be saved from death. And the NLT, if some of you guys might have the NLT Bible... A song to be sung to the tune, the suffering of affliction. Now leave that there on the screen for a second. That's as if to say, we all know the song, the suffering of affliction. One, two, three, four. I mean, it's like, now remember, that means this is a song, a song. The way we're about to read is something people would have sung together in corporate worship. And it was to the tune of another song that you all know called The Suffering of Affliction. Are you with me? Which means this, what we're about to read isn't the private writings of someone who's in a deep, dark despair by themselves only for them and God. What we're about to read is what people would have sung together. And as we read it, what I want you to imagine is, what if, what if we started the service with that song? It will blow you away. Like, no way people saying this out loud. Just to give you a sense of the difference and so maybe even a culture idea, cultural idea about suffering and pain. Because we're not comfortable with it. And we don't have language for pain a lot of the time. Psalm 88 gives language and permission for people to not always feel awesome. Let's read it. Psalm 88, verse 1-2 says this. Lord, this is how it starts. Notice this. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. Let's stop right there. Now, this is an invocation sort of of God's title. I mean, God, you're the one who saves. I can pray to you and you hear my prayer. So would you hear this prayer? God, you hear prayers. I have a prayer. I need you to hear it. Now, what could come next could be a lot of different things. That title could sort of have all kinds of stuff. God, you're a rescuer, you're a fortress, you're a shield, come to my rescue. Instead, it looks like this, verse 3. Remember, this is a song for corporate worship. Number, verse 3. I'm overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like one without strength. I'm set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave. 
whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You've put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me, uh, heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken me from my closest friends and made me repulsive to them. Now imagine, just again, imagine this is what we're singing. You've taken me from my friends and made me repulsive. That's an awesome song, I know. Repulsive to them. I mean, this is what we're singing. This is what this would sound like. I mean, it would sound probably a little better than I just sang it. But you get what we're, this is, everybody would be singing these words together. I'm confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry out to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. So why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I've suffered and been close to death. I've borne your terrors and I'm in despair. Your wrath has swept over me and your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken me from friend and neighbor. And darkness is my closest friend. Some of you remember Simon and Garfunkel. Hello, darkness, my old friend. This is the kind of song people would have sung together in public worship. It's a prayer that has absolutely no filter on it. It doesn't have a lot of balance about which we tend to do from time to time when we're praying and we encounter things that are painful in our lives. God, things are really tough right now, but we also know some things about you that are real. And I know there's another reason. We try to like almost justify the way we... There's no filter here. God, my own friends are... They're, you may be repulsive to them. My only friend is death and darkness. This is the way that this sounds. There's no little bow on the end of this sort of idea because grief and exhaustion and desperation and pain do not have a lot of time and patience for politeness. They just, the words just come out. There's confusion and sadness in this whole song about God not really living up to sort of his end of the quote-unquote bargain about how he's supposed to be our God and protect us. God, you're the one to whom I pray. You've got to hear me here. I'm overwhelmed. Talk to someone this week who, uh, she's her, both her and her husband lost their job. She said, you know what? I just, God always wants me to smile, so I'm always going to smile. I'm just smiling, smiling. And it was like she was trying to prevent herself from allowing, from even giving herself permission to feel badly about the situation. And somehow she'd interpreted that what God most desires for us is to fake it when things aren't going well. I'm fine, good, doing all right, can't complain. On uh, January 1st, my, um, one of my friends, her son, who's 21 years old, died. So I did their memorial service, I did the memorial service for a student who was in my youth group and known his mom for a long time and and she had someone recently come up to her and say, God must love you so much that he's given you this trial to take on. I mean, how unbelievably insensitive is it to that person to say, find all kinds of gladness and joy in this, in the midst of this kind of stuff. It's so, un- and we, there's something about us that says you're not even supposed to feel bad in the most difficult of circumstances, and yet there's language in the Bible that says it feels pretty bad 
Things don't feel wonderful. And if it wasn't okay to pray and say these things, then you wouldn't have Jesus on the cross quoting probably the most famous of all lament psalms, his 22nd psalm, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or in some translations, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? He doesn't say on the cross, my God, my God, thank you for this wonderful plan. My God, my God, I'm so glad I get to participate in this way. He says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? You see, there is so much of a need for us. Maybe it's cultural, I don't know, but for us to be able to have language for pain and suffering. And for some people today, or today in this room, there is for you now permission to not feel fine, good, wonderful, because the Bible gives you language for that. And if it was to be a song sung to the tune, The Suffering of Affliction, all of us would be able to sing it and stand in solidarity with those who are suffering to say, we've been there or we will be there because pain's part of the human experience. And so we can sing. We know what it's like to suffer. We won't shame the people who sing that tune. Jesus knew loneliness and pain. It's why he was able to say, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? He knew it in his own life, and he also knew it in his ministry. If you would, you can turn to Mark chapter 10. I want to give you a brief snapshot of what this looks like. There's a man. Jesus is on his way uh, to Jerusalem. And he's got a crowd of people following him. We're not sure how big it is. But it's a big crowd. Where It could be you know, the number of people in both of these rooms could be bigger. We don't know. But there's a person who he runs into who, who basically has a very simple lament prayer. And we're, we'll start in verse 46. And here's Mark chapter 10, verse 46 is this. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, look up here for a second. So here's kind of the way this is going down. Crowd's moving down. Bartimaeus is there. He's begging, which is what he did every day. He finds out that it's Jesus of Nazareth, and he yells out a royal title for Jesus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, the, the, the Messiah, the one who would come to rescue the whole world, God's anointed person, would come as a king, son of David. This is sort of the title, one of the titles that's sort of invoked here. And... When the Messiah shows up, certain things are supposed to happen. And everybody in the ancient, ancient world would have known this. So you would have known that the Messiah would show up. And Jews were anticipating then that there would be sight restored to the blind. That there would be good news for the poor. That captives would be released. That the lame would now walk. And there then is this picture of this man who says, Son of David, it's Messiah time. Son of David. And he says, have mercy on me. In other words, God, how long am I going to sit like this? Have mercy on me. Verse 48. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So look up here. Here's what's happening again. Take a look at this really quickly. He shouts out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And some people in the crowd, many in the crowd, it says, we don't know how big the crowd is again. Tell the guy, Bartimaeus, we're walking here. We've got some important work to do. Can you keep it down? 
you need to take that little suffering you got over there and kind of bury it because we've got some work to We're walking and we have places to get to and we're trying to figure out, can you just keep it down? You need to be quiet because we're not really sure we want to deal with your discomfort, your pain, your suffering. Shh. I can't help but think in my own life, and maybe this is true for you, that there's so much of me that says when people are really hurting, I don't really have time for that right now. Shh. I'm kind of on the move right now. There's a better time for this. You wait. Verse 49. Jesus stopped and said, call him. Stop right there. <laughs> now why doesn't Jesus, upon hearing Son of, God, Son of David, have mercy on me. Why doesn't he at that moment turn and walk over to Bartimaeus? Instead, what he says is call him. Now, all these people have been, you have to use a little bit of interpretive imagination here, which is to say we don't know how big the crowd is. We don't know how far away Bartimaeus was from Jesus. We don't know those kind of details. But the people, many, it says, told this man to be quiet. And Jesus then says, call him. In other words... You people who have silenced the one who is suffering, you now get to participate in bringing him to me. Is it possible that Jesus is doing something in here which is to instruct these people, the many in the crowd, that people who are suffering will not be silenced and you are going to be a part of this redemption story? You call him. You tell him to come over here. Continuing on in verse 49. So they called to the blind man. Cheer up. In Greek, it's like, take courage. On your feet, he's calling you. And throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. Now, this is a question Jesus asks frequently people who are in need of healing. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asks him. And the blind man said, Rabbi, teacher, I want to see. Now, what's being said here is this. Now this man is no, he could have said a lot of things. Jesus, let's say you got a big crowd here. I'm a beggar. Could you have them give me some money? Because that would set me up for a while. Just You can say a few words and just have them give me money and it, I'd be set. But he doesn't say that. Instead, what he says is, this, whatever, this where I am right now will no longer be my identity. I will not be bound into my illness. I want to be healed and I want to be, in so many ways, reintegrated into society. There are no responsibilities expected of someone who sits by the road begging. But now when you see, who knows what that means? And think for a moment what this looks like now. The people who have told this man to be quiet are now witnessing Jesus talking to him who says, I want to see. And they're, they're hoping that the man is going to stay there and not follow them and not be able to see. Because how embarrassing for them. Keep reading, verse 52. Go, Jesus said. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received sight and followed Jesus along the road. Now there's the crowd, and the many who had shamed him into silence are now walking along the man who has been healed, who has cried out, Son of, son of David, have mercy on me. And now they're walking together in the same crowd. What you get from this story is this picture here. That the only ones who will be silenced are those who would try to shame those who are in pain. Or also the cell phones will be silenced as well. And that's another thing that God wants us to do right now. Um, 
A blind man says, Jesus, have mercy on me. And he's healed. In a minute, I'm going to invite you. Some of you are, your life is to the tune, the suffering of affliction. And you are in desperate need of God to meet you in that pain that you might find healing. I'm going to invite you to come forward in a minute. Whether it's psychological, you know, emotional, whether you've encountered a circumstance, you have physical pain, whatever it might be, I'm going to invite you to come forward. Now, some of you right now are doing what most of us will do. Most of us who live in the fine, good, everything's awesome world, the how are you doing world, is we're immediately ranking our pain on the global scale of pain. Well, you know, it's not, I mean, there are people, you know, who have all kinds of diseases that are far away. There's people who live under the tyranny of warlords, and I don't, I don't, I don't have that. So it's, you know, I have some sore, I have pain that's been lasting. I know, what, you know, you don't need to rank your pain. If it hurts, if it causes you suffering, and you want Jesus to meet you in it, do not minimize it. Acknowledge that it's for real. Acknowledge that maybe God wants to do something in this. Now, in the story we heard, Jesus instantly heals this man. And we, does, we know that that doesn't always happen. Sometimes it does. We also know that there is healing by degrees. That over the long haul, things begin to sort of improve or get better. I, we were praying for a guy on our staff this week in our pastor's meeting. He has a degenerative eye disease that will leave him blind. There's no cure for it. There's no surgery. He'll just eventually, it's just, he's getting tunnel vision and eventually it will just disappear. And so we're praying for him. And it was a tear-filled sadness. We prayed on the authority of Jesus that he would be healed. And it was actually Mike Erie who hugged him and all the tears afterwards. And he said, don't give up hope. Sometimes there's healing in degrees. Meaning that we're, we don't always get the full picture of what God's intending to do in terms of how he plans to work. We also know that God doesn't always do stuff that we expect him to do. That there's stuff we don't understand that God is at work in doing that there seems to be no result happening whatsoever. We don't get to control that. We also don't know the answers of why things have happened. You know, we don't get to say then, this is why this happened to you. There's some sin in your life that caused this. We don't know. But we come in faith. And there'll be a team of people here in a second who are going to come up. And those people are going to bring their own faith to meet your faith. And they're going to pray in the name of Jesus on his authority. And those of you who need to be prayed for for healing... Come forward because you need him to be God now. You need him to step up in a powerful way in your life. And let me just kind of give you some instructions on how this will work. You don't have to turn in your Bible, but in James chapter 5, you get this sort of instructions for this kind of thing. It says this, Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well and the Lord will raise them up. If they sin, they'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So here's what's going to happen. In a moment, I'll invite you to come forward. Not yet. But this person, the, the, one of the people on our prayer team, we've already been talked to and trained and all that kind of stuff. But what they'll do is this. They might ask you first, is there anything that you want to get off of your chest that you need to confess? And you don't have to go into a long story about stuff. You can talk about, you can say yes, and there's some, you know, you can talk about broad categories of things. 
you might not know. It's, you don't have to make something up. You know, no, it's okay. And then what they'll do is the scripture says that you'll be anointed with oil. The oil is not magical. There's no special property in the oil other than that it's oily. That's all that it is. Just know that. And they'll probably just put a little dab of it on you. And it is merely a symbol as we, you know, this is one of the many symbols that we have in the church to be able to remember God's work. You know, some of the more sort of familiar ones would be like communion or baptism. But this is one that just says this is a symbol of God's presence. It's a symbol of the Holy Spirit in and among and covering you. And they'll probably ask you if they can put a hand on you to pray for you. And then they'll pray on the authority of Jesus for healing. Now, you don't want to go into a long story about all the things that are going on in your life. If you want some of that kind of conversation, you might want to do that after the service because there's a lot of people who are going to want to come forward and be able to be prayed for. Here's what I need prayer, prayer for. Here's what's going on. And here's just one last instruction is we want to try and keep it so it's as simple as possible and also as clear as possible. Guys will have you come to be prayed for with guys. Women, why don't you pray with some of the women that are praying just to make it as, as simple as possible. But would you do this? Would you stand, everybody in the room? Now, as you stand, <clears throat> this is a symbol of your solidarity with those who suffer. It is as if you sing the song to the tune, the suffering of affliction, to say, I get it, and I'm with you in this pain. And the only people who will be silenced in this place will be those who would shame those who are in pain. And so we stand to say, we're with you, those who suffer and who are in pain. You know, it's not that uncommon for us to finish a service where we all stand and sing. There will be music. Some of you, I would just encourage you to, to pray for those who come forward. Some of you, I encourage you to, to actually pray the words, to sing the words that are on the screen. But would you close your eyes for a moment, and we'll pray, all of us in this room. Would you pray these words, Jesus, we know that you are powerful and mighty and over all things. We believe, Jesus, that you are not overwhelmed by our pain. God, we know there are people in this room who are suffering great loss and tragedy and pain. We need you, Jesus, to be present in a very real way to us right now. Lord, whether or not we suffer, we stand with those who suffer and who have experienced pain. And we call on you, Son of David, have mercy on us. Holy Spirit, we invite your healing power to bring about healing in our midst. And so, Lord, we meet faith with faith in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.